Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome, everybody. I'm Steve Augustino from Kelly Dry's Communications Practice Group. And I'm Brad Currier from Kelly Dry's Communications Practice Group. And we're here for the latest edition of the Kelly Dry Full Spectrum Podcast. This is a continuation of our enforcement series. Uh, Brad and I have done a number of podcasts on FCC enforcement matters. We usually do a monthly update on that. Uh, as we sit here, though, in January of 2019, we've decided that what we want to do is a look back at the past year um, and really kind of a little bit of a compare and contrast the PI enforcement approach with the uh, previous FCC enforcement approach. It's been two years since Chairman Pai took over at the FCC, um, and he had very strong views on what should be done in enforcement and what should not be done in enforcement, and he was not uh, shy in making those known. Um, Brad, you and I, I think it was about uh, a little over a year, maybe almost a year and a half ago now, we did a discussion of Pi's enforcement and what we thought it would look like from the early stages of this. Yeah, that's right. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look back at 2018 and sort of Think a little bit about what Pi has done and how he's done it and um, see what, what enforcement looks like now. Sure. So let me do some stage setting for everyone. So after criticizing the prior administration for, quote unquote, policymaking through enforcement and imposing excessive fines, the Pi FCC promised a return to buy the books enforcement based on existing rules. PI's Enforcement Bureau has largely delivered on that promise with a series of actions on ordinary, well-trod enforcement topics. However, Chairman PI did not entirely refrain from high-profile enforcement items that advanced his priorities in 2018. The year saw a number of USF and TCPA enforcement actions where the FCC continued to push the limits of its authority regarding both what enforcement actions it would take and who it would take such actions against. Now, this podcast is going to highlight some of those major developments in FCC enforcement and discuss potential next steps in the year ahead. Right, yeah. And one thing I want to note is we're breaking this out into two parts, really. So the, the first part, the discussion of this particular podcast here, is going to be the big picture, kind of what happened in 2018, and we're going to discuss a couple of the procedural and non-monetary enforcement issues that are involved um, we are also going to do a second podcast on this where we're going to take a deeper dive into the commission's actions with a real focus there on robocalls and some of the positions the Enforcement Bureau has taken in order to advance the goals under robocall and TCPA enforcement. Um, but we're going to start here then. This is the big picture piece of this. And as Brad mentioned, you know, prior to uh, Chairman Pai taking over. The commission was led by uh, um, Chairman Wheeler. And uh, Chairman Wheeler uh, had a number of very high-profile enforcement actions. We had an enforcement bureau chief that was not afraid of publicity 
Um, he was out there, very well known, very um, very vocal and and visible in his enforcement activities. Um, but the enforcement bureau chief then principally um, acted on what I referred to as principle based enforcement. That was relying upon broad principles based on the Communications Act's requirements, such, such as, for example, the just and reasonable requirement that common carriers have, and not so much on kind of following the, you know, the minutia of the various commission rules and doing rules-based enforcement. So it was a lot more of these are the broad principles and this is what that principle means in a specific case. Yeah, that's right, Steve. I mean, Chairman Wheeler's enforcement actions covered areas as diverse as privacy practices, 911 outages, ISP marketing, and other areas not previously subject to FCC enforcement. Under Chairman Wheeler, the FCC also created a USF strike force to police violations of the Federal Universal Service Fund. Wheeler populated the Enforcement Bureau with former officials from state AG offices, as well as the Department of Justice, who had a significant prosecutorial experience, but maybe didn't have uh, a lot of prior communications law experience, particularly with the FCC. Wheeler enforcement was characterized by very large proposed fines and an aggressive use of the Communications Act to use those fines. Right, right. And, and that was actually, I want to, you know, kind of emphasize this, you know, that was really controversial at the time in particular, that both the volume of the fines and the areas in which the commission was focusing on um, were were the subject of a lot of discussion, uh, a lot of blog posts that we made, a lot of uh, a lot of podcasts that I was doing. You were still at the FCC at the time, so so you weren't here doing this kind of commentary. You were um, grinding the stuff out as it is. Um, but but a couple of the things that I want to highlight here um, that were characteristic of that time period was a a lot of use of upward adjustments. So you'd have the base forfeitures, but then the NAL or the forfeiture order would say, but we're going to increase that fine from the base up to X or up to the maximum generally. Um, so in order to reach larger numbers. The other things that you would see there is there were pretty expansive interpretations of what was the statute of limitations, how far back they could reach, what types of things were still violations or were continuing violations. And it relied upon typically a finding of dozens of separate violations that uh, stemmed from the same core act. So you did something, but, um, you know, it, each customer that was affected was a separate violation or each piece app that you didn't notify was a separate violation. So that allowed for this calculation of very large fines between all three of those, the upward adjustments, the, um, the broad statute limitations, and the large number of violations really got us to some big numbers in all of those areas. Right. So at the time, when they were in the minority, the Republican commissioners frequently objected to the, the tactic Steve was just describing. And they often criticized the legal theory, especially on a continuing violation, if the violations were seen as continuing for years at a time, effectively eliminating the statute of limitations, and a lack of notice. And there we see in instances like the proposed um, fine against AT&T for um, internet issues under the open internet rules. Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly in particular criticized the FCC for fines allegedly issued to make headlines rather than to collect the fine. 
And he previously argued for, you know, a, a reform or at least a closer look to the ability of pay analysis. And that's something we'll talk about uh, later in this yeah. in this two-part yeah. podcast. I, I went back and, you know, preparing for this, I looked at our earlier podcast. We had emphasized that O'Reilly was the procedural stickler. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Know, that was kind of his role at the time in particular. So, you know, in particular, then Commissioner, now Chairman Pai, argued for the use of beyond just addition to fines to use other enforcement tools available to the FCC, such as revocation of authority or withholding of universal service fund support. Right, right. Okay. So so with that, so that was, that was Wheeler. That was kind of the controversy there. Now, when um, Pai took over, he uh, took some time, actually, uh, to appoint a new Enforcement Bureau chief um, that, that took... Longer than than usual, um, uh, and a an industry veteran, Rosemary Harold, was appointed as EB chief, and she came in. and One of the big things that she said at the time was that we're going back to basics. We're going back to rule based enforcement. We are going to um, follow the specific rules. We're not going to set policy. Uh, she claimed in the enforcement actions that we're going to follow what's in the rules, and everyone's going to know what their obligations are, and that's what they need to do. So. Um, taking a look back now that here we are in 2019, able to look back, um, particularly at 2018, but kind of more broadly at what the commission has done. And I think that, you know, we've by and large seen that, um, what was promised. There is a return to many bread and butter FCC areas. Um, a lot more enforcement of kind of some of the basic things. They aren't as sexy and they aren't, you know, generally aren't as large of fines as some of the areas. But we're talking about unauthorized radio transmissions, interference, transfers of control, equipment authorization issues. That's really what we've seen. And I think we're going to want to take a couple of minutes now to kind of go through a few of those and give you a flavor for what that enforcement has looked like. Sure. So let's talk about some of these bread and butter enforcement areas. And the first one you mentioned was unauthorized radio transmissions. And there were a number of examples during the year of not necessarily high dollar figure actions, but ones that still showed the commitment that there's a cop on the beat about operating within your authorized Levels and also within the rules that the commission prescribes. So one of the big ones we talked about actually on a previous podcast, we should just reiterate here, is the Fabrice Polonese uh, slash uh, Harold versus Veronese Cito. And this was actually a forfeiture order for a little over $140,000 against a Florida pirate radio operator. No surprises there. But also the owners of the property that housed the pirate radio station. Now, there the FCC made clear that the landowners knew about and directly supported the pirate radio operations, but it does open the door to expand enforcement against other landowners that may not be as aware of their tenants' pirate operations. Now, there are also fines sort of more general, straightforward. There was a one against a pirate radio operator in, in New Jersey that was the $25,000, which is the usual maximum under the rules. And there was also a rare consent decree with a pirate radio operator that involved a small civil penalty, but then had a suspended amount that would then be triggered if there was additional pirate radio operations or if the pirate radio operator had misled the FCC about his financial condition. Uh, one other big thing to note is that there was an uptick in in-rem seizures, it's called, which is basically when they go and seize pirate radio equipment. And we saw that in stations in Boston and in New York City. 
Uh, such seizures involve collaboration with local prosecutors in the U.S. Marshals Service by the FCC. The FCC actually also worked with um, local law enforcement in New York State um, in the arrest of a pirate radio operator and subsequent conviction. Yeah. So these are all, I mean, these are the kinds of things the commission had done in the past. I mean, you know, maybe the volume changed a little bit here, but, you know, um, you know, fines for unauthorized transmissions, in-rem seizures, that, those are powers the commission has had. So that's not really breaking ground overall. So that's, that's kind of, I mean, I think that's, that's fair. That's what Rosemary Harold said they were going to do. So we're going to follow this. One thing in that, that description I thought was a little bit interesting and maybe worth highlighting, at least kind of looking forward, um, is that uh, in the Fabrice Polonese case, going against the owners of the property that were housing the uh, pirate, pirate radio station because, um, you know, that is something that Commissioner O'Reilly had said, hey, we need to do something to be a little bit more effective here. Um, but it kind of does push the boundaries a little bit. There's really not an aiding and abetting provision of the Communications Act. So how do they go against those property owners? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a way of trying to avoid this whack-a-mole issue where the actual pirate radio operator, because the equipment's relatively cheap, can just basically suspend operations and just pop up later on on a different frequency in a different location. So this is a way of going after sort of the opportunities, the gatekeepers that provide the area. And one of the ways to do it, again, is here they're at this point still making the claim that these landowners are actually participating in the operations of the station. You know, they're going in there, they're in the station, there's evidence that they're there. They may or may not be actually manipulating, you know, the basically the equipment itself. And that is what brings them under the law. But again, we're seeing this sort of mm, tentative push out of the scope of what could be captured under these rules. Right. So so as we sit here in this studio recording this podcast, if we put an antenna up on the roof, then maybe this uh, our 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 um, our entity here that's allowing us to record this might have some liability. Well, I mean the and the key thing there too is that it also makes it just much easier for FCC enforcement because you know when they go to the landowner, the landowner is going to stay there. The landowner is going to be there the next day, whereas for a pirate radio operator, they very much can just pull up stakes and never be seen again. Right, right. Okay, all right. So pirate radio, there's one mm-hmm. thing they've done. What about um, interference issues? We've seen a lot of that too this yeah, year. Yeah, and it's been a combination of both intentional interference which was and sort of unintentional interference. So we'll talk a little bit about both. So uh, there was a forfeiture order um, basically against a warehouse uh, and that's operator for $22,000 um, in Texas for using a cell phone jammer to prevent employees from basically using their mobile phones while they're at work. The problem with that jammer is that it also interfered with AT&T wireless operations. So that's where the complaint came from. There was an investigation. And you see these pop up from time to time, sometimes with schools. I think one time we had someone actually out on a highway uh, with a cell phone jammer to keep people off their cell phones while they drive. Uh, where people oh, it's a public safety uh, issue <laughs> potentially with the you know, the best of intentions there um, buy this equipment, but jammers are illegal. There is no authorized jammer for private use, and so it's actually not just an interference issue; it's actually an equipment authorization issue too with the FCC. Right. And, and it, I, you know, I made light a little bit, but it, like even in this situation, it is a public safety issue. I mean, I I understand the um, you know the uh, owners of the warehouse here saying, I don't want my employees on the phone while they're supposed to be doing the job. It's safer for them to be, you know, concentrating on work rather than texting or what have you. Um, but at the same time with the cell jammer, then you can't dial 911 and you can't reach 
authorities in emergencies. Yeah, and that's the FCC's response to that is exactly you're, you're taking away the ability of the actual uh, consumer to be able to reach emergency services in a way that they would expect and probably in a more timely manner. So, yeah. so that was an intentional one. Give me an example of one of the inadvertent or accidental interference issues. Yeah. So, I mean, a really good one is actually there's a car dealership, you know, a, a, which was their lighting. And the sort of way to describe this is if, you know, listeners at home are thinking when they see fluorescent lighting in those uh, sort of assemblies that are in ceilings. Now, where that light connects to the power source, it's called a ballast. And sometimes that ballast, depending on... The manufacturer, maybe it's a manufacturing defect, maybe that's just the way that the lighting is designed, it's of poor quality or it's of different design, can actually emit um, radio frequency interference. And so there's been, it's been sort of something that ebbs and flows, uh, probably with a product line coming out into the market that has this issue. Uh, and so here, the, the, the lighting of the car dealership was interfering with Verizon's wireless operations. And they had Verizon engineers out there trying to figure out, and what they realized is, Oh well, it, it it stopped in the morning, and so what they realize is that when the lights, the oh, these overhead night lights there would go off in the morning, the interference would stop, and so that's then they brought in the FCC, uh, they figured it out. But that's an example of, you know, people who non-regulatees, people who aren't necessarily thinking about FCC enforcement, can still come within its ambit depending on the situation. Right, right, and we've seen the commission, you know, doing its job there, taking care of interference, stopping both accidental and intentional blockings of that. Okay. So turning to another bread and butter enforcement area is unauthorized transfers of control. And this is basically instances in which an entity is through an acquisition or other uh, business development is sending over basically control of their FCC licenses to another entity, but they haven't gotten the required prior FCC approval to do so. So just a couple of examples there. These are all, these are usually resolved by consent decrees. The company later discovers maybe through a subsequent transaction that something needed to be done previously or they need to clean it up in order to get the next transaction approved. Right. Um, I was going to say, a lot of these are self-disclosures. You come, you find out about it and you come to the commission and you say, okay, look, we we did this. Here's how many there were. And, you know, we want to fix that and correct it. Yeah, almost exclusively because there's no way for the FCC to necessarily know that this has happened because they haven't been informed that the transaction occurred. And so it's only with a subsequent discovery or a self-disclosure that they're going to become aware of it, I would say, in 90% of the cases. So first, there was a, a large consent decree for about a half million dollars with Marriott that dealt with an unauthorized transfer of control of wireless licenses during their acquisition of Starwood Hotels. Uh, they hadn't received prior FCC approval for basically all of these individual licenses that were being used by Starwood for, say, security operations by, by staff. And so the, by not receiving that approval ahead of time, basically after the transaction had closed as part of this sort of post facto cleanup, they then disclosed it and worked out a consent decree and a compliance plan with the FCC. Right. right. And the, the numbers get big. I just want to point this out. The numbers get big because there were a lot of licenses there. I mean, this generally speaking, this is not, you know, real groundbreaking kind of enforcement. It's $8,000 per unauthorized transfer. But if you've got, you know, 10 licenses, that's 10 times the $8,000. If you've got 100, it's 100 times that. That's kind of generally the way in which these are approached. Yeah. And we'll often see that where there'll be a consent decree. And there are a number of examples of this throughout the year of, say, like a $16,000 consent decree. And that would affect basically the transfer of the international and the domestic 214 authorization without getting the commission's prior approval. 
And so that's transfer of control. And now let's talk about while bread and butter, maybe they're taking it in a new direction, and that's equipment authorization. And again, this is something the FCC Enforcement Bureau has always been uh, looking at, something they've always done items on. But here we're seeing sort of an, a new, renewed focus and an expanded uh, look at it. So there were a number of items during the year, and we'll talk about a couple of them, that basically dealt with the pushing out equipment to market without getting the required equipment authorizations, labeling, or disclosures. And the equipment authorization rules by the FCC can be extremely complex, but many cases what we had here is that the actual authorizations were never sought in the first place. Um, one was a notice of apparent liability um, over $2.8 million against Hobby King for allegedly marketing uh, uncertified audiovisual transmitters for use with drones. And the problem with the transmitters were they were capable of operating on unauthorized frequencies and at excessive power levels. The FC actually went far enough to actually put out an enforcement advisory specifically about this issue of unauthorized drones transmitters. I mean, with the expansion of drone use by hobbyists, they were finding that a lot of unauthorized equipment was getting out to the market, again, by people who don't necessarily aware that this could be an issue. So right. they try to address it at the highest level possible. Right. But but that enforcement advisory, that's another tactic out of the standard FCC playbook. You know, you find an issue, you issue an enforcement advisory to make sure that others who are similarly situated are aware of it. It also kind of clears the decks for the FCC then to pursue, to, to pursue rather, um, others who have done this because now it's very clear that they are on notice that they had these obligations because the enforcement advisory was out there. Right. They can pursue them because they presume that they now have the knowledge of it because of the enforcement advisory. And we saw, you know, and this is not just sort of academic in some cases. I mean, there was another consent decree against a company called Horizon Lobby for $35,000 for marketing uncertified transmitters again, but they operated on frequency bands reserved for federal weather radar operations. So there we see a, a sort of a overlap of both equipment authorization and potential interference issues. Um, there was also, a, I'm trying to think, it was a, a proposed fine. It was actually over a, a half a million dollars against a company called Pure Enrichment. This was one we talked about in our prior podcast where they were marketing personal wellness devices like ultrasonic humidifiers that actually emitted radio frequency waves that required equipment authorization labeling and disclosures that weren't done. And then one that we're actually going to talk about um, a little bit more later on, there were these 21 separate settlements with companies that marketed LED signs without required equipment authorizations, labeling, and disclosures. If you add them all together, the, the fines have been about 850,000 civil penalties. Um, individually, obviously, each one of those was a little bit less, but that's something where we saw the FCC directly reach into an industry segment about a particular equipment authorization issue. And again, 21 different items on it, by far the, the most out of any other topic. Right. Yeah, there clearly was widespread noncompliance in the industry in that situation. And that may not be over, right? I mean, there's 21, but there uh, easily could be many others there. So. It's kind of interesting, right? You see all those bread and butter things, right? You know, transfers of controls, equipment authorization, all of that sort of stuff. But what we didn't see, what you didn't discuss in any of that, um, were actions against common carriers for their obligations under the just and reasonable provisions of the Communications Act. So none of that um, principle-based enforcement that had characterized a lot of what Chairman Wheeler had done 
We didn't see that at all um, in 2018, which is um, which is interesting. But one thing I want to point out in that though is that you still have some of these leftover NALs out there that um, you know haven't they haven't addressed. So there are NALs that take that propose fines using the just and reasonable obligations against various carriers, and those were you know those were controversial and. In some cases, at least, um, you know, some of the current commissioners had dissented from those NALs, um, but they're still out there. They haven't issued a forfeiture order canceling those um, and uh, haven't addressed it, which is, you know, potentially risky because it leaves it out there and, you know, maybe there's change in administration and maybe those get revived again. Um, you know, maybe the principal is used. We've talked before about how the FCC has sort of this tendency to cite to NALs as if the NALs are themselves precedent. Um, and that's, you know, not necessarily correct. Um, but by not addressing those just and reasonable practice ones, you still sort of have that issue here. Right. They certainly haven't been canceled in any way. Right. Right. Okay. So um, let's, so that's what they didn't do, um, uh, at least on that. But there has been enforcement against carriers, um, and it has primarily related to USF, the Universal Service Fund, which is a almost $9 billion a year fund, roughly the size of Major League Baseball, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so we had the USF strike force. Now, that has kind of essentially been disbanded. Is that right, Brad? Yeah. I mean, they're still working on a number of cases right now. There, there's some of the people, but it's not clear to me that there's like the group that's that's still there um, uh, handling this sort of thing. But so so we've had, um, you know, some of those uh, actions on the universal service area. And I just want to at least note a couple of those. We won't be able to, to dig in deeply into either of these, but it's it's worthwhile pointing out what has happened in 2018. Yeah. So one big one when we've mentioned before is something actually against a company called Data Connects. This was a proposed fine of about $18 million for alleged failures to comply with the rural health care program, competitive bidding rules, and allegedly providing misleading information to increase the support received by the program. Now, we'll actually discuss later on that because of some subsequent developments, it's highly unlikely the FCC is actually going to pursue the collection of this fine. But again, it showed in particularly in that item an attention to not just the uh, service provider receiving the support, but who the service provider works with in obtaining that support. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And, and the other, another notable one, uh, another area, you talked about rural health care, another major part of the um, Universal Service Fund is the Lifeline Program. We all know Chairman Pai is not a fan of the, the Lifeline Program. And not surprisingly, he has taken a very large uh, notice of apparent liability proposing a $63.4 million forfeiture against the Lifeline provider, American Broadband, and its uh, CEO for seeking reimbursement for allegedly ineligible subscribers. Um, now, I'll note here uh, that uh, this is very important that Kelly Dry and Warren represents American Broadband, so we're not going to comment in, in this or even in part two of this about that particular ongoing enforcement action. The only thing I want to note is that that NAL does present some significant due process concerns and appears to relate to conduct that falls outside of the lifeline rules. And so, you know, there's, there's issues on that, but unfortunately, we can't talk about those. 
All right. So, so that was our, our summary of some of the things that have happened. And um, what I do want to talk about now is let's dig a little bit deeper into um, the settlement process and what the commission has been doing on that. And then we have another, a, a bunch of things that we will talk about in part two of this, uh, this podcast series here. But let's talk about the settlements and what the commission has been doing with respect to those settlements. Sure. So, I mean, it's sort of a truism that FCC policy goals often move faster than rulemaking process. And the FCC has long used compliance plans and consent decrees to impose obligations that often go beyond the strict scope of existing rules. So this has been a long-held practice. Uh, the FCC under then-Chairman Wheeler adopted a number of reforms that stuck, such as labeling settlement payments as penalties, uh, while others have largely been abandoned with the new chairman, uh, such as requiring emissions of liability in settlements. But the FCC has used these consent decrees in the past to drive industry change in certain targeted policy areas. We've seen the past in third-party billing, Wi-Fi blocking, slamming, which is a perennial enforcement issue. Yeah, again, you know, sort of like using the consent decree is, you know, it's a standard move out of the FCC playbook. And so the PI FCC is continuing that trend of using the compliance plans to push adoption of industry best practices through revised corporate you know, procedures, the development of compliance manuals, and mandatory employee compliance training and reporting obligations. So we're going to talk about you know one big example and then circle back on another one, which the FCC reached a $5.25 million settlement with AT&T in June to resolve investigations into two 911 service outages. Now, importantly, these 911 service outages are what's known as sunny day outages. They're not caused by weather or natural disasters. They're instead caused by human error, network issues, when they're maybe doing a system update or something like that. Now, the AT&T, in their consent decree, agreed to implement a number of compliance plan procedures based on earlier best practices recommended by the Public Safety Bureau. And that included certain things about identifying risks of outages, protecting against outage risks, detecting the outages, responding to them, and then recovering. Right. And so there- And that's, if I can, yeah. sorry, mm -hmm. you know, that is uh, pretty common and we had seen that in the past. So the, the way the consent decree says is, you know, what it says is, AT&T will implement a compliance manual. They'll appoint a compliance officer. They will have a manual that will address and then go through these things. And so this is stuff where those were recommendations. They were never binding what the Public Safety uh, Bureau had said. Um, but they're now binding on AT&T, at least in that they're going to go through the process. Yeah, and interestingly, in this particular consent decree, AT&T agreed to a provision requiring it to develop and submit sort of a specific roadmap with objectives and implementation timelines. And that at least suggests that the FCC was exercised continued oversight to ensure that the company met its best practices benchmarks. Yeah. And, and I don't think... I don't think that's addressed to AT&T. I don't think that's really um, – I, I know it's it's binding on AT&T, but I don't think that's motivated by a concern that AT&T is not doing what it should be doing. It's just that the commission has seen these 911 outages, and, and in fact, there's another one even after this. There's one that's fairly recent that may or may not yield uh, um, some enforcement later. Um, and so I think the commission's just getting kind of frustrated with this and uh, – this was I took this as an indication that they really want to see specific actions, not only by AT&T, but by other industry players 
that are going to have a material impact in reducing the number of these outages. Yeah, and another good example of that with the FCC reaching out to that, you know, looking for specific industry action is actually those uh, 21 separate settlements against the LED manufacturers and retailers that I mentioned. And so there, there was a situation where the targets were all first-time violators. They were located across the country. The targets brought their signs into compliance before reaching settlement with the FCC. The consent decree required all the targets to adopt new internal procedures to ensure equipment authorization prior to marketing and the retention of that documentation supporting device compliance and other obligations that we've talked about, like employee training. And by issuing sort of this wave of consent decrees to multiple targets with nearly identical compliance provisions in a specified industry segment, the FCC can induce sort of that whole segment to adopt best practices, and in this case, to meet equipment marketing rules without having to go and change the rules themselves. Right, right. Yeah, no, if, if, you're, if you're advising a company that makes LED signs now, you have to look at these 21 consent decrees and you have to look at the obligations there and say, you ought to be doing at least this. Um, because if you're not, you know, while the commission was relatively lenient in terms of the penalties... Um, in these instances, it may not be in the future if you haven't done at least this basic. So they did kind of set a new baseline for this industry. Yeah. So speaking about the future, you had sort of intimated about 911 outages and mentioned, you know, the FCC recently announced a new investigation into the nationwide Century 911 service outage. And as part of that, you know, to your point, Steve, the FCC is likely going to examine, examine whether the company adheres to 911 outage prevention best practices. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, the commission's patience with 911 outages has, uh, has run out, I think. You know, it's, we're early in January. This CenturyLink outage was um, uh, right after the new year, right, right around the holiday. So, so I mean, it's, it's really, really early and keep that in mind as you're listening to this because there may have been developments between when we record this and when you actually hear this podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the way the commission has done this in the past, and it looks like that's what they'll do here, is they have the Public Safety Bureau first do an investigation, figure out what happened on this, and then Sometimes, but not necessarily always, uh, the Enforcement Bureau then comes in and does its own investigation, and so you see actions at kind of at two stages there. But 911, I think, is definitely one of these areas that's prime for this best practices through settlement, some way of moving this forward more quickly than rulemaking can do. Um, the other thing to point out here is that one of the reforms that Chairman Pai put in place, um, or reforms, changes, I don't know whether you've, you've, you know, how you want to describe this particular one, but the eighth floor now has control over consent decrees that are above the, the $100,000 limit on this. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're essentially reserving the right to have consent decrees handled at the commission level. Right. Right. And, and so that means, you know, more involvement on that. And, and it'll be interesting to see there whether and how, um, the settlements then are used if they're used more frequently to try to advance those policy goals. It is, um, like, it's, like I said, it is quicker than rulemaking. And while technically it's only binding on the entity that has agreed to it, um, as you're advising others in the industry, you tend to say, well, 
they're doing that, that's an indication that the commission thinks that that is something everybody should be doing or is something that is necessary to ensure compliance. So it does have this effect kind of indirectly on the rest of the industry. Yeah, it at least shows to the industry, here is a compliance plan that is blessed by the FCC and therefore should be within the rules. So Right. Okay. All right. So so that was a lot of content. I want to I want to thank our listeners uh for making it through uh, to this point on this. Um, this is why we're breaking this into two, because there is a lot to talk about here. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this now, uh, about what Pi has done and run through kind of some of those things. As we move forward, we're going to record a second podcast on this, a part two, where we're going to look a little bit more specifically into some of the areas where where I think at least that Chairman Pai has kind of pushed the envelope a little bit, has um, a, you know taken uh, some of the actions that that arguably you know he had criticized the commission for in the past. Um, primarily, we're going to talk about robocalls and that, uh, um, and how he's getting through those things. So, um, thank you for listening to this one. Stay tuned for uh, part two of this coming up soon. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.